This morning's reading is from the book of Psalm, chapter 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. And where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Leslie. Well, this morning, as we've talked about a little bit already, I am really, and I mean that sincerely, really looking forward to this, starting this uh, short topical study on the gospel. It's even more than you hoped. 90% of what we do here at Bethany Church is work through books of the Bible uh, from start to finish, or in the case of Genesis, over a, a few chunk section, we'll finish the entire book of Genesis. 90% of what we do here is that's what we do because this is the word of the Lord, as we just said. That's why we say it out loud. We believe it. We proclaim it together as one voice. This is the word of the Lord, and we're thankful to God for it. From time to time, we step away and do a series that's focused on a specific topic, and yet, as always, we'll be textually driven. We want to let text talk and the Bible speak. The word of the Lord shapes us. We don't shape the word of the Lord. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do over these next few weeks in this new series. Almost every Sunday morning, you know this, in our welcome time, I introduce our church as a, a gospel-centered church. And those uh, 10 or 11 people who went through our membership class yesterday, our covenant membership class on Saturday yesterday, heard us talk about 
the gospel and the word, the gospel in the entire first uh, section of our manual out of three sections. We talked about it. We even got a wall, an entire wall devoted to it now in our church gathering place. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what stands as the center of our faith, the center of who we are, the center of the Christian life, and we're endeavoring to build the church upon it. We're endeavoring to help people follow Jesus, our mission statement says. But what's the gospel? What is it? The gospel literally means good news is what the word means. In the Greek, euangelion, it means a good news, a great word, a good story, as you could call it. But what's that story? What is the story? You know, the challenge I know to be true is if I was to ask each of us to write down one or two paragraphs to explain the gospel, we would get many different answers. How do I know that? Well, in our covenant membership process uh, and our get-to-know-you conversation we have after the class, I asked the question, how would you describe the gospel to somebody? And I can tell you, uh, almost every time, I get a different answer or some similar variation, and sometimes I have to help the person get there, and that's okay. Time is sort of for that, but if this is what we are about, if this is who we are, if this is what Paul says is everything, shouldn't we have a common ground? He says in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I believe in that verse Paul is teaching that the power of God, the gospel, is for past, present, and future salvation for us, for the world. A way we could pose the question another way would be, what did Jesus come to do? What did he come to do? But therein lies the the, the personal element of salvation, which we're going to unpack, the personal element of it. But I believe in another way, another way we can all begin to understand and share in a common language about the gospel is also by looking at the big, not just the personal heart, but the big cosmic story of God's work in the world. If you want to form a culture, shape a people, which we do at Bethany Church, a gospel-saturated, full culture, and the larger culture in general from our church outward, you do that through language, words, vocabulary. In our book, Gospel Fluency, which our men's frontline group is reading right now and been having fantastic discussion on, the author, Jeff Vanderstelt, talks about the power of of stories changing a culture. Stories give meaning to to, to language. If I was to tell you, uh, you know, Aslan was a a lion in a story, and I say the word Aslan to you, and I could explain the powerful lion, okay, yeah, yeah. But if you've read all the Chronicles of Narnia, and I go, Aslan, you know that story? Oh, so much more meaning there. Or think of how we see things playing out in our larger world. The story of most people growing up today under, the story they live under is this. Your feelings are where your ultimate meaning come from. Your personal truth, your identity, so follow your heart. You are autonomous, an individual. You must find yourself. You must define yourself, and you must live your truth. That has been the dominant story 
for decades now. So are we surprised then when we see individuals living out of that story when those who choose to change genders by a mere change of language, a word? Well, gender means this and what I say it to mean. Are we surprised that there's confusion in our culture if that's the story that we're being raised on or raising the next generation on? Biology doesn't define my destiny, my feelings, and my proclamation define my destiny. Well, the bigger story of salvation matters too. And it will shape our vocabulary and vision of what the gospel is on a smaller. And we've missed that actually, the bigger story in the evangelical church. We've missed maybe the forest for the trees. Have you heard that phrase before? The forest for the trees? Not that the trees are, is, is wrong because that's the individual conversion of people that are made in God's image. It's good. And that's the core of the gospel. But what is our salvation for? What's the larger story of the gospel? And how should that define and guide our mission? Or, or what, here's another way to put it. What's God doing in the world? What is he doing today when things look so chaotic? In this series, we're going to do both. And we're going to call them throughout the series this. We're going to call it the, the Google Earth view of things and then the street view. Here's a, here's a picture of us on Google Earth. You probably used it before. Maybe not. If you haven't, it's okay. You get the idea. It's a big map of uh, kind of the center of Canby there. And it's way high up, zoomed out. You get the larger picture of where we are in relationship to everything else, don't you? Uh, let's go to the next one. There's 99 there, the blue stripe you see popping up. And there's Waite Park down there on the bottom right. We got the next one coming up, Tony. There it is, down there. And, um, and then you get down another picture and you get, where's our next one? Oh, there's uh, Canby High, go Cougars. There they are up there on the top right. You get an idea of... The 10,000-foot the, the view, the, the Google Earth view, up high looking at the grand scheme of things. But here's a street view of Bethany Church. Here we are. There we get to see all the details of a nice summer day, freshly painted white signs there, the, the extra green grass there, and the, you see the pink blooms fall, falling off the tree there now, so I'm guessing that's summer there. You get the idea. That's a street view. In this series, we want to take both the Google Earth view and the street view of the gospel, and we're going to weave them together. We're going to bring them together. Let me just lay it out there real quick. A bit more intro today in the first week of this series, but let me lay it out there and just show you where we're going in this series. Here's a chart for us. We're going to basically be looking at four different chapters in this gospel story. You've got a question that will help you each week, but then we've got the street view, and then over here you've got the Google Earth view. So today is our question, where do we come from? The street view we're going to look at down low is God and what he's done, okay? But the Google Earth view is larger. It's going to be a picture of creation. Week two, what went wrong in the world is the question. Well, Street view, well, that's going to be man, isn't it? Man and women, people. And the Google Earth view is going to be the fall. Chapter 3 is going to be, well, what's going to make things right then in this world? The street view for us, we know that. That's the core of the gospel. 
We're talking about Jesus Christ. The larger picture is the redemption of all things. Chapter 4, how can I be made right? Or you could say the world. The street view is going to be what's the response to Jesus the individual needs to do. And the larger Google Earth view is going to be the restoration of all things. Does that make sense? I hope that gives you. I want to just put it right out there where we're going in this series. I think that's important for us. We're going to try to weave together that third and first, I guess second and third column there, third and fourth, I guess. We're going to try to weave those together. I, I got a big task ahead of me, don't I? <laughs> a really big one. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, we must present the total gospel. He said there is a personal side to it. We must deal with that. We must start with that, but we don't stop with that. He said there's a social side, indeed a cosmic side as well. We must present the whole plan of salvation. Why? As it's revealed in Scripture. That's how what it says. We must show the ultimate object, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.10, is to head up in Christ all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him. That's the big cosmic, isn't it? Google Earth. All things. The gospel impacts all things. The quote goes on. You are emphasizing that salvation is not merely something subjective, a nice feeling, or peace. That's very important and it's part of it, but there's something so much more important, namely the whole universe is involved. Have you thought about the gospel like that before? That the whole universe is involved. When we look at the bigger picture, it's like looking at our family of origin. How many of you like to do genealogy? This is not a genealogy crowd. (laughs) Two out of the hundred in here, and I'm married to one. Not the other, <laughs> David. That was David. What's the other one? Now, okay, well, some people do. It's a big business, I know, so they must just not attend Bethany Church, those people. Uh, but when we look at the bigger picture, it's like looking at our family of origin. Where did we come from? And a lot of people do love genealogy. Where did we come from? Well, let's look. Grab your outline. Hopefully you've got open Bible to Psalm 33. We're going to look at two foundational truths today about God to answer this question from chapter 1, where do we come from? Here's our first foundational truth. It's this. Our existence comes through God's Word and His work. Our existence comes through God's Word and work. We, We have to start here, as everything does. We have to start with God. And the fact that we owe our entire existence to him, to his word and his work. The gospel, in other words, doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with you and I. It doesn't actually begin with our needs or our wants. It begins with God. And if you get this wrong, you can't understand your deepest need, actually, even, to be saved from sin and death if you don't start here. Or even know, I would say even know, if you don't start with God, you, don't, you can't even know what your purpose is for being alive. And there are so many false assumptions, aren't there, about God in our world? Aren't there so many? So many false assumptions about God in our world. And really, one of the primary assumptions about him for Christian and non-Christian alike is that God kind of just wants me to be happy. He's kind of centered around me. His goal in life is to provide me with what I want, or at least what I need, 
and desire, and of course, he would want me to be comfortable all the while while he does it. Or for many, actually many, they don't even really give much credence or thought about God in their day-to-day life other than, well, I'll call on him when I need him. I'll call on him when I think I might need him or I get into a crisis. But if that's the way you look at it, what happens then if 7.6 billion, billion people, that's the way they look at God? for their life and for the whole world. And this is where it all begins. All begins right here. It centers on God. So let's unpack three quick points underneath this main heading. Psalm 33 is really written to give us reasons for why someone should trust what God says about them. Our first thing we're going to look at is the all-powerful creator. And it pops out of Psalm 33 a little bit. As I said, it's written so that people will have reasons to know why to trust what God says about them and why they should trust his word, in other words. In verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 33, say one of the reasons you should trust him is that he made everything. Look at verse 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So trust him because he made. Verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 33 is saying that everything was made by his word. Why does that have to be the case? Have you ever thought about that? Why does it have to be the case that everything was made by his word? Well, think about it. Because nothing existed before that. Nothing existed before that. There was no existing even materials out there out of which to fashion a world. Nothing was there. Pause for a moment and try to think of nothing. You can close your eyes. That might even help you. I'll I'll, I'll do it too. Try to think of nothing. What is nothing? What is nothing? It's nothing. I mean, you can say that, but I don't even think I can really comprehend that. Can you? We always just know something and stuff and life and things and matter, our body and things. But Genesis 1 to 2 tells us this, the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning was God, and he spoke things into existence. There was nothing, nothing to fashion or mold. He had to speak it because there was nothing. And so the implication for us then as humans is we are not self-existent. You are not self-existent. You did not get up this morning because of your might and power. I was talking to my nephew last night on FaceTime, and he just turned 13 yesterday. And we were chatting on FaceTime, and and we said, hey, do you feel different now that you're 13? And he looks at us and goes, yeah, I feel more powerful. (laughs) I feel more powerful. And he was kidding, of course. He kind of laughed. He knew he was messing around with us. But you got out of bed this morning because God allowed you to have another day and gave you the body and breath to do it. The all-powerful creator. Not because of your power and might. And Scripture reveals to us all over the place, and creation shows us that. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord The sky above declares his handiwork. And our psalm goes on to say, 
He is bigger than the nations even. Look at verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. The counsel of the Lord is what stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. We can plan. Nations can scheme. Our president just held this massive Zoom call with all the nation leaders of the world, and they made these big plans, and we can do all that. But it's His Word that's all-powerful. More powerful than the nations. Do you know Isaiah? There's a place in Isaiah, the verse is popping up, where it says, Behold, the Almighty Creator, behold, the nations are like the drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. What would that look like? Let's take a look. All right, let's see what I got over here. Anybody curious today or even curious why there's a, that's kind of weird, a medicine dropper there today. Let's see what I got under here. Hey, what do you know? A bucket. I got a bucket there. And the, the verse says the nations are like a drop in the bucket to this creator. Let's take a look. I got some water in here, I think. Yep. Let's take a look. Hey, you watch. There it is. It's a drop in the bucket. It's a drop. It's a drop. I can't even get it to come out. Look. The nations are a drop in the bucket to this God. That is who we serve. Okay. What's it say? What's the next thing it says? Dust on what? Scales. Let's see what else we got in here. All right, well, this one's heavy. Thank you, Diane Baldry. They're real, scales. Uh, here's a DVD from my garage, Citizen Kane. Great movie, I recommend it. Uh, but it's covered with dust because we're doing construction in our garage right now, and we got uh, cement dust everywhere. Let's see. Yeah, that was my breath that moved it more than the dust. Nothing. <laughs> The nations are dust on the scale. Does it give you a picture? Does it give you a picture, I'll leave this here, of who this God is? See, we need pictures like this because you can hear it over and over and over again in your mind, but we need pictures like this to remind us how big God is, how massive he is, and we are not. He made us. Well, that's what he is like. Let's look a little further. At the second point under this all-powerful creator, let's look at the triune relational God. That's going to help us understand why he created the, the world. So he created, he can do it because he's all-powerful and nothing existed before him. But why did he do it? Why did he make us? And this is so important for our understanding of the gospel. The Christian belief is that there is one God who exists in essence, one God of substance, of being, you might say, and yet he exists in how many persons? Three. That's the Trinity. 
It's the only, Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches this. That the Father, Son, and Spirit, who all, are all equally God, have been living together in a loving, sacrificial, serving relationship for all eternity. And this relationship they've had for all eternity is totally other-oriented amongst the Trinity. We see it in the words of Jesus from his high priestly prayer, the glory you've given me, he's talking to the Father, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Or how about the way the Holy Spirit so quietly and, and humbly as a servant points all people to Jesus and the Father. And there's a reason we don't talk about the Spirit as much. That's actually the, the way the Spirit wants it. He points us to Jesus because he's serving in the Trinity in the role that he's been given or tasked or even uh, uh, is joyfully happy to play. Other-oriented in the Trinity. If God was just one God and one person, then think about this. He would not know what love is until he created another being. This is why in the religion of Islam, you get such more of an emphasis on God's judgment rather than his love. Do you think the Trinity matters? You bet. That's why Islam barely speaks of love, speaks of judgment. There's no three persons in God. But the true God of Christianity is a relational God. It's essential to his being. Community, it means, is essential to the Trinity. And because God has had it for all eternity. Triune, three persons in one God. So why did he create us then? Surely he wasn't lonely. He wasn't lonely. He didn't have any needs, so he didn't need us as he's presented many times. Like he had some hole in his heart that only we could fill for him. He created us to share Mutual love, community, and fellowship that he already had. That's why he made us. He created us to share in that sacrificial, loving community that he had, he had always had, that's always existed. So the all-powerful creator created a good world out of nothing, and he put humans in it to worship and know him in fellowship. It's absolutely astounding. He didn't need to do it. He doesn't need you and I. He's absolutely self-sufficient and can never be in your debt. That's the God of the Bible. He doesn't need us, yet he chose to create us for his glory, to make his name known. One more thing we're going to answer before we go to our second question is this all-triune God, he's also perfectly holy and righteous. We need to know that, too, under this larger heading of our existence coming from his word and work. Look at verses 4 and 5 of thirty-three, Psalm 33. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his steadfast love. So not only did he make us, he's all-powerful through his word, not only did he make us because he didn't need us, but he wanted to share in the Trinity and in his perfect love and community, but the one that did it is perfect himself. 
He loves righteousness, the psalm says. He loves justice and goodness. He's truthful in his word. He's holy, 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 Isaiah says. Perfect in all his ways is the one who breathed you into existence. And I'm pointing at you youth right now. (laughs) Breathed you into existence. He's perfect. If this is all true now, Shouldn't this have some bearing on how we live? Some bearing. Some bearing. I mean, shouldn't it really cause you to rethink every priority in your life and rethink how you use your time and how you use your money? Shouldn't it cause you to stop dead in your tracks and say, well, if this is who made me, what do you want from me? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Because ultimately, if he made us, he gets to prescribe our purpose, too. The all-powerful creator gets to prescribe why you're here and what for. So let's look at it. It's our second truth today. Our first one was that we come from his, we're created by his word and work. Our second one is that our identity and purpose and our work comes from God's blueprint. His blueprint. I mean, if we come from his word and work, then it would make sense that our identity and our purpose and our work would come from his blueprint, his original plan. I briefly mentioned in the example over here that we're currently remodeling our house. Uh, Reason number one, because we want to stay here a long time. That's the first reason. And the second is that the original design of our house, it doesn't quite fit our current need as a family. With three growing children, we really feel the stretch and desire to have another bedroom. You know, I didn't get to design uh, my house. Some of you did get design, got to design your own house. That's a great, uh, cool thing you get to, if you got to do that. I didn't get to design uh, the house that we're in. I didn't get to, to put the rooms, my wife and I didn't get to put the rooms where we like them or where we'd want them or choose how many rooms we have, and, but we love our house. We love our neighborhood, but it's not super functional yet for us. So we're going to make do with that for now, and we have to do something about that and split our basement into two rooms. It's an, it's an after fix, right? A remodel, an after, redoing something over again. This was not the case with God. He has designed everything in the world from from scratch, from nothing, from the bottom, from the ground, from the foundation up. He designed it and made it. He laid its foundation. He hung the stars. He hung the moon. He formed the mountains and the seas. So his blueprint is what matters. God got to envision the home perfectly before building the house. And he doesn't make mistakes, does he? The way he designed it is the way it should be. Think about that. All those 7.6 billion humans, billion, were designed by him to live according to his blueprint for his purpose, their identity, and their work in the world. Do you know what that means? That means if you haven't come to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't understand life. You don't understand life, even. You don't know purpose. You don't know identity. You live in a fog, a haze, a dark mist, a dead end. 
if the, he's the real designer. God got to envision the home before building the house. So what was it like in the original house? What was it like in the Garden of Eden? Some of this, now we get to get into kind of some of this Google Earth stuff, which I love. If you're somebody that loves big themes, big picture, big ideas, this is probably going to get some traction with you. But we're going to do both, Google Earth and Street View. But here's some big kind of uh, different biblical way to think. Here's the first thing we see in this original home. God's glory and self-regard we're going to talk about in a cosmic temple. What do I mean by that? God's glory and self-regard in the cosmic temple. It's a little bit different way to think about things, but it's biblical, and I hope to show you. Back to our line of reasoning on the Trinity. Back to the Trinity. God was perfectly content in himself. Remember, we just talked about that. And I know it's a nice sentiment, but God wasn't lonely without us, and we don't complete him. We're not the missing link in his emotional vacuum. I know that maybe sells well and feels good, but he was content always. Remember, three persons in one God. And if he is who he says he is, then... The most loving thing he can do, if he's the greatest thing there is, he's had perfect community and relationship, the most loving thing he can do is to make himself known. His glory, his greatness, self-regard, in other words. How many times have you watched an, an athlete, whether they score a touchdown, hit a home run, or sometimes in that sport that none of us watch soccer, there's a sport, it's called soccer, um, they, they run and, you know, tear their jersey off and they slide over in the corner and they do one of these. That's like self-regard, isn't it? Because they know in that moment, I've done something great, therefore I'm going to show it. And they give self-regard. And we watch that and we, we kind of like, like it, but at the same time we're like, ooh. You know, like, you have that, ever have that feeling like, oh, that's a little bit too much there, buddy. A little bit too much celebration. Why? We know it's temporary, isn't it? It's fleeting. You won't remember that goal tomorrow, or we won't, and it, it's gone. But if you're God, if you're God, the greatest thing you can do is show it, say it, share it, because it's not fleeting, it's not temporary. He can back it up. His self-regard and renown. It's appropriate with God it's not technically appropriate when we do it, is it? That's why it kind of rings wrong with us a little bit like, ooh, you know, a little too much celebration. It's totally appropriate for God to do it. The Westminster Catechism says it best. You, may, you probably heard this question. What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I actually like saying it better. Chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The Bible itself, the gospel itself, truly now, here's why we're talking about this, from beginning to end is ultimately about God's glory. Ultimately not about you and I. It's for us, but it's not necessarily, first and foremost, about us. It's about his glory, his renown, his purpose, his work, his self-regard. 
The world is propelled by God's glory. And everything he does in this world, everything he made in this world then, is for his fame and the spread of his name. That's you and me too. Salvation then, it means, is not just your fire insurance. Have you looked at it like that before? Has it been, has it been presented to you like that before? Oh, sure, that's part of it. That's part of it, escaping the wrath of God, and we're going to talk about that in particular in week three when we talk about the solution. But that's not ultimately everything it's for. It's for his glory, first and foremost. And that is one of the most repugnant ideas to those 7.6 billion glory robbers, isn't it? It is one of the most repugnant ideas. I know it is unsettling, actually. And we're almost more allergic to that idea than to all the pollen in the air right now in spring. That first and foremost, God is all about his glory. There are tons of verses if we had time we could go through and I would show you. But here's just one. Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are just a few things. No. All things to him be glory forever. Amen. So as God makes the world, he makes it first and foremost then, if he's all about his glory, as a cosmic temple. Not as a playground for you and I necessarily, but a cosmic temple. It's the place where early on in Eden and creation, his glory will be displayed. I wish we could spend a ton of time on this. We could do a whole week on this, but here's just a little bit. Genesis 1 and 2 makes it clear that the creation and the vast expanse is supposed to be like one giant temple in which God displays his glory. Here's a quick few points just to support that. The word used for light in Genesis 1 when God says, let there be light, the word he uses there is the same Hebrew word for the lights that illuminate the holy place in Israel's tabernacle. Even the seven lights on the lampstand, you've heard of that? I think it's called the menorah, the seven lights on the lampstand in the tabernacle mirror the seven lights that are visible that you can see with the naked eye. Sun, moon, and how many planets can you see with the naked eye? Five. Seven lights in the sky, seven lights in the tabernacle. And here's another one. The language of Genesis 1 and 2 mirrors the language of Exodus 39 when the tabernacle is completed. The language of the creation mirrors the language of the tabernacle. And so if God's world was meant to be his cosmic temple, where did he manifest his presence most clearly? Well, in the temple in the tabernacle was that place called the Holy of Holies. We know that, right? He'd manifest his presence most clearly in the Holy of Holies. At creation, it was Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. The temple is that. The tabernacle was that. Eden was that. And God was intimately, immediately available in the garden of Adam and Eve to fellowship with him. And where was the place where it was most clearly? What was the holy of holies of Eden? What was in the center of the garden? The tree of life. The tree of life. So the all-powerful, the all-transcendent creator was present 
with his people. Let's talk about God's presence. God was intimately and immediately available in the Garden of Adam and Eve to fellowship with. And as I said, like it was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, like it was in the temple, the Holy of Holies, in the Garden of Eden, the center point was the tree of life, the center of that garden, the place where God manifested his goodness and his presence most clearly for creation. And chapter 3 of Genesis just casually mentions, remember back to our series, he was walking with them, just walking with them in that garden, so present, so immediately available, like he walked amongst, the Bible says, the Israelites and their camp. And you know, in Ezekiel, Eden's actually described as a temple where? On top of a mountain. Why is this important? Because the beginning of creation, the all-powerful sovereign creator of all things created human beings and made earth to be a temple of sorts where he would personally commune with them and with his people. And it was on top of a mountain because on top of mountains is where what meets? Heaven and earth. And he would meet there with them and be present with them. And Eden and the tree was the focal point. Eden is the early holy of holies. And just like Eden had a, a, a tree and a garden, and then the outer worlds to which they were to spread to, the tabernacle and temple of the holy holies, the place outside, and then the outer court, and then the world they were to take the message to. And this presence with his people, this glory he showed to them, Adam and Eve, they had a role to play going forward early in Eden. His work. Here's the work. Let's look at the image bearers who were meant to be royal priests. Like no other part of creation, and we've talked about this before, but it's so important. Like no other part of creation, he stamps his image upon Adam and Eve. What that means is all the rest of the creation was made by God, but only we were made like God. Not God's now, let's be careful. We're not God's, we're recreated. We know that. We already talked about that by his word and work. But like God in some ways. I've used this example before. It's one I've mentioned most, most clearly to me. I don't know why, but I have a book press. It's nerdy, I know. But the first page of books, it stamps an impression. It presses down. You put the page in and you press upon it. And it puts its stamp upon the page because I don't want anybody's hands on my books. <laughs> I want them back. It's selfish, I know, but it, 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 it designates the book. It puts a stamp upon it. In his image we are made. His stamp is put upon us. That's why he said, hey, look at the coin, Jesus said. Whose image is upon it? Okay, we'll render that to Caesar. His image is on that. Who's stamped on you? God's image. So give your life to him. You owe it to him. I love how... These two guys, Beal and Glad, they put it in their New Testament introduction. This big idea about God's cosmic temple. They said after God created his cosmic temple, he began to enter into the cosmos to rule over it. That's his resting on day seven. And dwell with humanity. On day six, though, he created Adam and Eve at the pinnacle of creation to rule on his behalf. God's full presence remains in the invisible heaven. Yet he comes down to Eden to dwell with Adam and Eve. 
This is similar to God dwelling in heaven, yet residing in the holy holies of the temple. We've been talking about that. God's aim then, purpose, identity, is for this first couple to spread this glorious presence over the entire earth so that it may be transformed into the new heavens and earth. And once the earth is permanently transformed, God's presence will descend and fully dwell with mankind. It wasn't full at the beginning because sin was still possible. But do you see what this is saying? Humanity, the first humans, Adam and Eve, were meant to be a royal priesthood. Kings and queens who had the job of imaging God, shining his glory on earth as we covered the globe with image bearers. That was their role. A priest is to represent God to the people and the people to God. That's what a priest does. God says in Genesis to them, and God blessed them. And God said to this first couple, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. Or in Genesis 2.15, he says, work and keep it. Do you know that those two words, work and keep, they're the same words used for the priests in the tabernacle and their job. Work and keep it. You're a priest. You're a king. And so that Eden would spread out to the rest of the garden and then spread out to the rest of the world. What a high position. What a grand calling the first human beings had. Here's why I said if you don't know God and his purpose, you don't really know the purpose of life. Does the average person walking down the street, those 7.6 billion people, know that their original design and purpose and work was to be a royal priest for God? Do you know that as a Christian? Maybe now today, a royal king, a royal queen. Do you see where we came from? Do you see who we were? Do you see why our mission is more than just getting your fire insurance? When you look back to the garden, his glory was the purpose over all the earth. That's your purpose. It's my purpose. Yeah, but now look at us. Look at the world. Look at the world now. So what's the solution? Jesus is putting it all back together. What's the solution? The gospel is the story now. Okay, think tree of life, tabernacle, temple. Now Jesus, the gospel is the story that Jesus came to dwell, walk with, walk with humanity, with his presence, and make us back into kings and queens. Turn us back into royal priests, Peter says. A royal, a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. And someday, a new garden on top of a new mountain. So God's presence in his glory was in Eden. His presence was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle and temple. And when Jesus began to walk on earth, do you know how John described it? And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, with all that 
stuff in mind, doesn't it make that verse pop off the page more? All that story from the tree to the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus then showing up, the glory of God walking amongst them. God's presence with us. And do you know, you know this, I know you know this, when Jesus Jesus finished paying the penalty for our sins and the curtain that covered the Holy of Holies, that the place that God's presence was manifested most, do you know what happened to it? It was torn in two. Here's the verse. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. But see, I don't think, I don't think that curtain was torn so much so now that we could go in. You know what I think? I think God was bursting out. I think he was coming out of that holy of holies in Jesus, and it tore down the middle to show that, yeah, God is here. And he was bursting out to begin again the mission that Adam and Eve failed, the mission that Israel failed, and the mission he was going to now take and pump into the church, which is us. That's you and I. To spread what? The word. To be fruitful and multiply. To go over the earth and fill the earth and subdue it. Royal priests. Kings and queens. And that's our mission too. And that's a big gospel story, isn't it? Let's pray.